When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, this is Charles Hayne. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for Thanksgiving 2022. I'm Charles Hayne. I am a filmmaker and writer and I just had to introduce myself on a social network and I'm very conscious of how weird it sounds to introduce yourself. I'm here with a filmmaker and podcaster, Gigi Hawkins. Hello. Cinematographer and uh, angsty ponderer of filmmaker status, Todd Blankenship. (laughs) I like that. Hey, how's it going? Existential is the word I was looking for. Okay. And uh, editor in chief at No Film School and producer. Yeah. I, I, I think I did it well without the word existential. I think I did okay. <laughs> George Edelman, editor in chief of No Film School. Hello. Good morning. Good so, afternoon. Uh, before anything else, everybody should know that we are a, uh, we're a, we're a crack team this week. No <laughs> one on this podcast is sick. Everyone is at 100% peak capacity. <laughs> All of our brains are working fantastically. We will forget no words. We will get no names wrong. It's going to be a great podcast. This is um, going to be our best first topic. episode ever, probably. <laughs> right. I mean, I think it might be. So, <laughs> Excuse me. Gonna... We got <laughs> cough number one, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> oh, my God. You guys don't even know how many coughs there's going to be. My, my oh, very faint one. No, okay. no. Oh, you, you can't see it. But I do have a very faint one. I like so. that you have it handy. I like that it's just right, yeah, you know, just right next to you there. <clears throat> you Keep that, that thing out. on. Although it's also yeah. important to remember that they're only good for about half an hour after you take the test, and then after that, they're also not accurate again. So, because like I know people got messed up by that. That like, oh, half an hour later, then the you know it turned clear again or whatever, and they're like, I must be fine. And it's like, no, it only lasts <laughs> a little bit, guys. If there's any line at all, any line at all, you got it. Yeah, you got it. I don't have COVID. I have bronchitis, which is a oh, thing that you get. If you are a child or if you have a child, and I have a child, so I have bronchitis. I've been as sick this last week as I've been as an adult. Oh, but it's not COVID. So there's that. Hooray. And there will be coughing. Do not play a coughing drinking game for this podcast. Please. Oh my God. There's going to be so much. We're not going to edit it out. All right. Subjects this week for the episode. Subject one, hilarious executive shufflings. We've got two <laughs> things this week to talk about with that. First off, Disney did a Sunday night CEO change and went back to their old CEO, which is like, there's definitely some like dating meme stuff about like, why are you still thinking of him? We'll move on to the next, like there's stuff there we could unpack if our brains were smarter. We'll leave it to you guys to make the meme jokes, but we got to talk about that. But we should also talk about at the same time, sort of the same day it happened, the New York Times did a long, one of those deep reads about all of the internal kerfuffles at Warner Media that led to them being spun off by AT&T. And I want to talk about that too, because there's some interesting stuff there that is always good to pay attention to. You know, I don't think most of our listeners are executive bound, but we're all going to be working with executives forever and and understanding them better is never going to hurt us. And after what happened with James Gunn, I don't know. The next executive. Yeah. Also, guys, if you are a director, if you're not on Mastodon right now, get on Mastodon. James Gunn is over on Mastodon and has completely left Twitter. 
And it's like soliciting pitches for obscure DC characters to make into movies on Mastercard. And people are totally taking swings. And they're like, let me pitch this one to you, James Gunn. What other social network has the head of a fucking studio open to pitches? It's not going to last on Mastodon. In like a week, James Gunn will be like, no, that's too many. But it was a pretty fun couple days having James Gunn be like, yeah, let's let's give this a shot. What do you guys think? I love James Gunn. So our second subject is uh, inspired by the Storybergs, the new Spielberg movie. Um, <laughs> no, it's not the Storybergs. It's the... Um, Narrative Bounds? It's the tale. <laughs> Narrative what? <laughs> Narrative Bounds? Narrative bombs. Story bombs? Uh, <laughs> story bombs. What are you guys doing? Um, <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> so, so we haven't because, even finished our topics yet. <laughs> yeah. So because, uh, because Steven Spielberg didn't want it to be too obvious that this movie he was making was about himself, he changed the name to Fableman, you know? Like, okay. because he's okay. a storyteller. All right. You know? Okay. And the fable. The, okay. I get it now. He's going to make bullet. So, you know, there's a lot going on. Uh, <laughs> regardless, uh, Gigi has a topic about our um, ego check moments in our career. And we've all had them. And I think it's really good to talk about them. Um, especially not that we're going to talk about SPX and crypto because crypto remains dumb. But it is amazing to watch someone have like a multi-billion dollar ego check moment in public and be like, oh, my ego check moment wasn't that bad. I, I didn't steal $32 billion from anybody. <laughs> so, you know, my, my mistake's relatively small and not criminal. Mostly not criminal. We'll get to that with my last subject. Oh my uh, our, our, third, our third subject today is uh, we're going to do uh, our Thanksgiving, what we're thankful for in the film and TV industry. Like what, what, is, what, what about cinema? The industry or the media or the culture, what is it that we are grateful for this year? We're going to say what we're thankful for, and we're going to wrap it up with an Ask No Film School that I'm going to ask the three of you. And if you guys don't have an answer, I'm going to ask the audience. It's, it's cinematic. It's not Love directly it. movie-related, but it is cinematic. It is about someone on the run from Johnny Law who needs help. And I have hit a dead end on the internet, and I would really like the audience to tell me what the fuck to do. And we'll get to that in our Ask No Film School this week on the No Film School podcast. All right, so we're... Uh, yet, I think. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. every introduction <laughs> should be epic. 17 minutes long. <laughs> We told you this will be the best episode. And we'll, we'll see you guys next week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. First subject this week is a, is a doubleheader. Executive shakeups. First executive shakeup happens on Sunday. Disney had a CEO for a very long time named Bob Iger, who Bob Iger was always interesting to me in that he was clearly doing a very good job and making very smart decisions and buying Marvel and like from a CEO standpoint, as much as I don't want one company to own every brand, like there was stuff he was doing where I was like, yeah, you should buy Marvel. That's very smart. I don't, I'm not going to hate the player as much as I might hate the game, but never had the, the swagger of an Eisner. Like when you think about, maybe it's just because I was younger, but like the CEO before him, whose first name, I don't remember, but whose last name was Eisner, was like Michael a Eisner. media person. Michael Eisner. Like, Michael Eisner, my parents knew who Michael Eisner was. He was, like, publicly famous in a way that, like, Bob Iger was just like, I'm going to be very good at this, and I'm going to be very... And he wasn't uncharming, but he just wasn't as, like, 
I don't know. Maybe it's because he stayed out of court. I think a lot of the things that got my Michael Eisner famous were like court cases with David Geffen and stuff. So his handpicked successor, who had the same first two names, Robert Allen, both of them, same first two names, Robert Allen, which has led to a lot of internet conspiracies that he was like growing his own clone and then is now replacing himself with his own clone, which is why it was Robert Allen, which is a conspiracy theory I'm totally in support of. <laughs> the other one I really love right now is the conspiracy theory that it was the Gazelle Tom divorce that led to SBX collapsing. Love that one too. I'm here for you, internet. They replaced on a Sunday. They pushed out Robert Allen, the new Chappick. Robert Allen, Chapek, and put back in Bob Iger, which is wild. Because it tells you how fast it happens. Like, yeah. you don't go back to the old CEO. You just don't, right? Like, that's when you read someone's Wikipedia and someone is like, her fifth husband and her seventh husband. And you're like, ooh, that's drama. Like, what was that? Yeah. Like, what happens there? Especially that one... The famous one where it's like the fifth husband and then he threw acid on her face. Not that Bob Iger did that. And then she married him again. Like that one is like, you're talking like, about Elizabeth Taylor here. No. <laughs> no. Um, Excuse me. So, so yeah, I mean, let's unpack Disney a little bit before we go into the Warner brothers. So thing. a couple things. So Eisner, Michael Eisner was sort of a celeb of a kind. He was like, do you guys, Maybe I know Charles is old enough, but like what I remember is like he was he was he was kind of like filling the Walt shoes a little bit. And Disney in the seventies mm-hmm. was in the dumps, relatively speaking. And Eisner came in in the eighties and was kind of part ushered in an era that was kind of like the beginning of Disney's like run to, to total dominance that it has it, now. And so this is because of him. It was like the Little Mermaid and Aladdin. I mean that sort of second. All that whole animation department that came out that grew. But yes, it was like all kind of cascaded after him. But that that's another story about Disney. About like kind of their animation in the eighties was really weird. Like they went off the rails a little bit and struggled, and then they brought that was Geffen too, right? Yeah, they brought in Geffen and and Fresh Blood, and then those two Mencken and Ashman. The yeah. guys who wrote the music and the lyrics. Like, so there was like this, yes, but there was a couple things that coincided and Eisner kind of presided over that era. But um, anyway, so Eisner was like, he was kind of like Walt in that he was visible. Like he was at Disneyland, he was on TV specials. He was like, anyway, I think what you could say about Eigner, Eiger <laughs> as the modern CEO model is that he did the things Charles is talking about. He bought shit. Like he he bought Star Wars, he bought Marvel. He was like, Disney is gonna acquire everything. And Chappick was head of parks, which is funny when you think about like succession, because this isn't isn't yeah. uh what's That's his name, Tom. head of parks. Like, yeah, Tom is head of parks. Like it's kind of like Chappick the guy who's head of parks. <laughs> Chappick was a weird choice as a successor, and they kept Iger on the board. He still had a lot of power. He was still involved, like he was kind of overseeing it, but it was like his hand-picked next guy. But it always felt like, from what I gathered, that Iger was never really gone. Like that he, he was Logan kind of hanging Roying out. This whole situation, and it's just now that you have succession, I'm like, he is. This is power plays. This is like something <laughs> about it feels like he never really left, and he was, and and they had a very bad quarter. Like they had bad earnings reports, basically. And it was within the week. Like, it, like it, I feel like the bad numbers came out last week. And then by Sunday, it was like Iger's back. Numbers shot up 
on Monday for stocks. Now, I don't know, like we're deep into the weeds here on the industry stuff that I don't know how many filmmakers care about, but the idea of, you know, a giant company like, like, and, and so I've know people who work at Disney in the television department and legal teams. And like, they were saying like the internal emails on that day, the quote I got was it would, it was as though Trump resigned midterm and Obama came back. Like that was the vibe that they had on the inside was that people were just like overjoyed. So they believe on the inside that this is something that like things were going the wrong way and this guy will change it for the better. Now, anecdotally, like my impression of what's happened is just that like people feel like Marvel is not doing well, like this content isn't as good. And whatever phase we're in, I'm not a Marvel guy, but like I think we're in a phase that people say is bad and that we've kind of lost something, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that the vibe has just generally been Hey, someone's got to write the ship. And I don't know if he, if, if it's like, I think it's optimistic to think that he could. I don't know. I don't know how to prognosticate such a thing, but it is interesting because, you know, maybe we'll see some major changes or some other, I don't know what Iger does besides for buy shit. So I don't really know, like, like I don't really know how he, he writes the ship necessarily for Disney or what? Like, I think they just, to me, it just feels like Marvel was kind of like, yeah, they beat a dead horse. Like we're at the point now where it's like, you know, I don't know. What do you guys think? You guys think he's going to fix it? Like, I don't, (laughs) I do have a theory. Okay. I'm very curious. And my theory is that the entertainment industry remains a relationship business which is the story behind a lot of the shakeups at Warner. And I think it's the story behind what's going on with Disney is that in the end, when we talk about Marvel as a property, like, you know, there's that whole thing with Quentin Tarantino right now saying like, Marvel doesn't want the actors to be the stars. Marvel wants the characters to be the stars, which is like QT is taking shit for it. And it's like, well, we've all known that for 10 years. Like that's the point of franchises is that these actors should be replaceable or whatnot. Like that's the goal. And like, fine. but. All of them were built around talent relationships that Disney should have been able to find a way to keep. So, for instance, Marvel lost John Favreau to Star Wars, which is all within the Disney camp. But, you know, a lot of the early voice that made so much of Marvel wonderful was Favreau's ability to do pop culture with, like, affection, wit, and brains. Mm -hmm. And, like, the supervision he brought to that. And then he went over to Star Wars, which is still Disney. Iger's making money. But then... I was very surprised. We didn't talk about this in the podcast, but like the guys who did Avengers, brothers from Cleveland. Russo. Russo brothers. I was really surprised that Gray Man was a Netflix project because I was like, well, if you're Disney and they just made you all of the money in the world, shouldn't their passion project be on your bankroll? Yeah. Like, how do you let that get away? Like whatever Netflix is offering, you can offer money and a theatrical release, which everybody because I wants. Think, so I think because they are their model is about property. Mm-hmm. Like it's that thing of movie stars, of characters over movie stars that Tarantino's talking about. And the reason he took heat for it is because the way it's framed is it sounds like he's saying like the Chris the Chris guys aren't movie stars because he was like Thor and Captain America are the thing. It's not those dudes. And he's right. But but that's by design because it's like saying the Russos can go make movies for anybody. What we care about is the property. And right. I'll give you another example. And I think this is why Iger's going to look like a genius, even though it's not 
it's just under his watch is like Avatar is Disney and Avatar is going to make like billions of dollars. Right. And that's, they're going to have a park. They're going to have Avatar Park and et cetera. Is it going to make billions of dollars? I think so. Is it? I think so. Avatar? (laughs) Really? I don't know. I wouldn't bet against it, to be honest. I never bet against Cameron. Cameron knows shit and has mysterious things. But like, I don't know. For me, it was just really interesting. Like also pivoting to the Warner Media thing. If you guys haven't read it, New York Times had a really great one of those, like, we've clearly interviewed 90 people. If I always love paying attention with those because it's always really clear who the main sources are. Everybody gets at least, like, one defining flaw. But one of the characters' flaws will be, like, they were always tan and never wore a tie. And that was, like, not part of the culture. And I'm like, all right, that's their source. Like, if that's the flaw, if that's the problem that you chose to harp on, you're the one who fed all of the information to the article. Because someone else's flaw will be like, they were really smelly and liked to poop in the executive bathroom. Every And it's like, okay, that's the person. Classic like, Warner. There's always, <laughs> there's so much, like, it's so obvious when you're reading those that you're like, oh, these three people talked a lot to the author. These three people did not. It's a really fun article, though, because another one of the things is that a lot of the shakeups were talent relation-based. Like, both Disney and Warner's and Warner's much more so than Disney struggled with how they managed their talent relationships through the pandemic and releasing things online because they needed the cash flow. And as much as nobody is excited about uh, Warner Discovery, the possibility of some better talent relationships should be a hopeful thing at Warner having a studio head that's at least willing to realize what terrible mistakes were made. You know, like, if you guys don't remember, they announced without talking to Chris Nolan first that Tenet would be streamed online. And that's not how you, like, it's just not how you, 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 these are the talents, folks. Right. These are the people on which you make billions of dollars. Meet with them beforehand. They'll understand if that's the decision you have to make. But they want to be in it. And then they want to push back. And like, as we see right now, Netflix doesn't love a theatrical. But there's a there's a week long run for Glass Onion for Ryan Johnson, but even Ryan Johnson shouldn't Glass Onion be at Disney? Except wait a minute, no, uh, no, because he didn't make them that much money on um his Star Wars Star- movie, which I love. Yeah, he didn't make that much money on that. So yeah, I mean Disney didn't know him shit. Netflix was smart. Respect the Netflix on that one. That's fine. I, do- I just it's so weird for me when you make a fuck ton of money for a studio and they don't feel like they're like, okay, well, we should try and launch your next franchise. But Ryan Johnson did not make Disney a bunch of money, so I get that. I do think that there's something, you know, it's so easy to be frustrated with the big business of studios, but I do think historically there has been, there's a there's a business and art into managing talent relationships and getting these, especially in the days of like traditional movie stars, being able to like facilitate bringing those big names in and ha- actually producing content that that resonates and and I think that has been a little bit lost with the influx of like tech in entertainment where that soft skill has which of course has been scaled at the studio level and I guess Iger coming back is is maybe an indication that we're moving a little that the that we're moving a little bit more towards valuing that I think it's it it's easy for us to forget that that is valuable and that does that is a business asset to be able to manage and facilitate those types of relationships. 
And I'm thinking like of a big streamer that I was connected to and the lack of facilitating that big movie star talent. And yeah. I just think that I agree, but I think that like Charles used the phrase, like I don't hate the, the player or I hate the, even if I hate the game. And I think about that with this stuff a lot, because I think that it's easy from where we all are or from where most of our audience is kind of in the, in the world of, you know, trying to be creative and valuing the craft or the art to look at these movements or decisions as being kind of soulless or stupid or, or misguided or just whatever, or devaluing the things. But like from a certain perspective, it, it always seemed like the smart move to me, even if I don't like it. Like, I don't really like it, but the idea of trying to take the power away from a star and trying to take the power away from an actor and put it in the hands of a property you own and, and trying to water down by having like, like it took a while for me to pick the pieces up on this and like, see what it really was. But like, cause it was like, why do they have to have a new Batman every three years? And it's a different dude and like a different director. But now I get it. Like it's brilliant because it means you don't have, you're not beholden to anybody. Right. Like right. Batman can be any guy and it can be any director. And and that is such power. It's a like reset. At, instead a of being owned. Right. Instead of, or like even with watering down Spider-Man to the point of like, well, we'll throw three Spider-Man in the movie. Well, then it's like, if one of the Spider-Men can't make it one time because he's a holdout, you're like, hey, you know, hit the road, dude. Like, mm-hmm. we don't need you. I got Spider-Man mm-hmm. up the ass. Like, like, and I think that that, I just think that's, that's the smart play. And I also get why Tarantino I think his comments are fascinating in this light because he loves the persona of a movie star and he Mm -hmm. likes casting the persona or miscasting it or twisting it. We love that stuff where he's like always been the guy who like grab a has-been you haven't seen in 50 years or he'll take like a top tier star and he'll put him in a role you never considered. And it's, it's awesome. But that totally empowers the star and the director. And I just think from the studio perspective, from the industry perspective, it makes all the sense in the world to try to devalue that and be like, hey, you know what, Tarantino, you know what you can do? You can do a Star Trek sequel for us if you want. (laughs) And it makes sense for him to be like, no, I will not. I'm not doing that. Like, so I think that's. Like, is it backwards? Think, Wasn't he desperate to do yeah, one? Yeah, I think, I think that one? happened. Like he had like a yeah. gritty Star Trek he wanted to do. He wanted to do a Star Trek because oh. he's a weirdo, and he had a, like a really weird. Yeah, it's that's an interesting side show. But look, Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans called Planet of Feet is not <laughs> is not going to do particularly well. I don't think, and he is next making a bullet. Did we talk about this on the podcast? Like he's going to take like make like a bullet prequel sequel with Bradley Cooper and it's just kind of like man like Spielberg is is mining IP now one like, for him one for them yeah, exactly <laughs> excuse but me also let's not forget that this struggle goes back isn't a new struggle or a struggle that's just related to Marvel like Clemenza a huge part of Godfather 1 is not got in Godfather 2 and there's a brand new character who physically looks a lot like Clemenza and serves a very Clemenza-like role hmm. because Clemenza was supposed to be the main antagonist of Godfather 2. And then 
His agent held out for too much money. The actor didn't even know. The actor is still mad about it. The actor's oh, like, I would no. have done it for less. I wanted to be in Godfather 2. But the actor was like, no, man, you're like the biggest part of the sequel. I'm going to get you more money. And so uh, Robert Evans was like, yeah, we can just rename the character something else and cast somebody else. The, the other guy's good. Godfather 2 is still a good movie. What was the, the name? Despite... What was the rename? The... <sighs> it's like the, big, it's the guy who... Because Cle- well, Clemenza is in the flashbacks because I think Bruno. Yeah, well, they'd already shot all that. They had yeah, all the, the right, flashbacks right, in the right. can. They didn't have to pay anybody for that, right? Anyway, yeah, no. I mean, it's true though. It's it's definitely like it's not a new thing. It's just that yeah. being yeah being smart about like the yeah. It, Frankie Pentangeli is the Clemenza part, and uh, so it worked out for Michael Vigato, who is great in the part, and like it's wonderful. But like that is like. The desire to be like, you are interchangeable. And here's the thing. In a certain aspect of the industry, I was actually about to say something that's totally wrong. I was about to say, in video games, this is going to happen, right? Where they can just replace everybody ad nauseum and whatnot. Except there was a thing where there was a big video game, and they tried to recast the lead voice actress, and she mm-hmm. threw a fit. No, they didn't try and recast her. They tried to cut her pay. Are you talking about Bayonetta? And she was like, guys... Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was all kind of a weird, that was a weird hoaxy type situation. I think like they were like, she said they weren't paying her a lot and it ended up not being true or something. I, I don't want to speak too much on it because I don't really know the the specific details, but I think, I I think it was kind of a weird situation. I don't think it's, it's what we're talking. It's, it's not comparable to the Godfather thing. I no, have, it is a weird time to be trying to create content. <laughs> I have a prediction that what we're going to see in Succession season three is <laughs> the Bob Bob replacement switch only with Tom getting put into power, and then Logan revokes it because you know, spoiler. Yeah, Tom has kissed the ring. In a meaningful way, and so we're just let's let's circle back to this. I still haven't watched out. the latest season. I, I need to get caught up. I feel like I would oh. I would oh, get that fantastic. reference much more. I take it back. It's not fantastic. It is an amazing five episodes stretched over ten episodes. There's like <laughs> this like weak center. It starts strong and it ends strong, and in the middle they're treading water. And you're like, guys, you should have just told HBO you wanted eight episodes or six. Like, just tell them because you can feel it. You can feel them be like, we know where we're going, but let's like throw up another plate. And you're like, I shouldn't feel it. Mm. Mm. <laughs> anyway, I, that. I love Secession. You're a great show. But uh, the the whole obsession that everything has to be the same length every season. Like, why couldn't you have a six episode season and a 20 episode season the next time? I, well, I know or, you're like, a big fan TV of show um, all time, Bluey. I know you're a big fan of the great. I felt that I just finished the second season i kind of felt the felt a little bit that way about the second season there was a, there was like a filler episode or two where i was like man this really fell off yeah i'm with you on that yeah yeah sorry the, I mean, I've, I've been really quiet during this segment because it's just like i don't know with the the disney stuff like i don't when it gets to that level when it's like the like this guy left and this guy came back and then this <laughs> thing happened and now the marvel movie guy is doing this and Sean Gunn is here and you know I, for me it's like I'm always, like there's a part of me that I'm just like my brain just kind of shuts off and I'm just like are the movies are kind of getting bad can we fix that I don't know can we have movies be good that's really what I want and I I mean hopefully I don't know I don't know 
a damn thing about Bob Iger, whatever his name is, but I I just know that uh yeah, phase four's been kind of kind of weird. And maybe maybe you know, we're in phase four, George, by the way. Um Thank yeah. you. <laughs> but I, you know what you just said a lot though by in in commenting on not saying much because like you just said, can the movies be good? Like I think that that's the bottom line thing is that's frustrating. And Tarantino also in his like latest press tour where he's talking good quotes for yeah, he he gave he gave lots of juicy stuff. In that last yeah, week. he also <laughs> mentioned the thing where he was like, "We're in like one of the worst movies for eras ever," yeah. and like could go into the that like I don't I actually think. Yeah, he loves horrible movies. So there's something kind of strange about it with him. Like yeah. some of his fa- like he genuinely loves bad movies. So I'm confused by his. But anyway, I think I don't know that he loves lot- bad movies so much that he loves. Mm. Yeah, the thing about Tarantino <laughs> is especially before he had kids. If you Maybe. regularly went to movies in LA, you would just see him because he goes to so many movies. Like if you're seeing, like my buddy went to see like Ten Thousand Leagues Under the Sea at a nursing home in Pasadena. And Tarantino was there. Oh. I went to see three, Kiss Me Kate in Technicolor 3D, and Tarantino was there. Like, if you're seeing any know. weird movie in a print in LA, there was like a 50% chance Tarantino would be there because he just loves them all so much. Bad, good, it doesn't matter. Even though he's got like, he, he's saying like, this is like the worst era. Like, he still loves, he would still be like, but I'll, I'll see them all. But yeah, I get it. But I think still, it's, it's an interesting point because. Our, the social media guy at No Film School, shout out to Zach. He put up a little image like collage with the quote on social media and he picked like three or four. And I loved it because I was like, I love, I want to know all the movies you considered for this graphic. And mm-hmm. I loved like he had the big one was the Emperor Palpatine coming back to life, you know, in that last Star Wars. Because I think if anything defines the shittiness of this era, that might be Pal- it. Palpatine somehow returns. Palpatine <laughs> right. Yeah. And then there was, you know, and he had the rock is black Adam. He had a couple other random superhero things. And it was just like, yeah, it, it just kind of looked like the general crap fest we've been treated to of late. And like, I just loved it because I think, I think that one of the things we do in the industry that's not that I don't love is we are all super careful about saying when things are not good. Mm. And Ryan Johnson, who we were just talking about, had a really good quote too recently. When he was asked in his press tour for Glass Onion, kind of about like the response to the Star Wars movie he made. And he was like, it doesn't bother me that people said it wasn't good because I think it was good. And part of being a Star Wars fan is always claiming that you know what's good Star Wars and what's not. And like, he was like, it's just like, I think it's good. I don't think they're right. Like, whatever. And I just think we should be more openly comfortable saying like, yeah, I, I, I didn't like that. I don't think it's good. And having everybody, and it's not personal. And it's not mm-hmm. like a critic. Like we all can acknowledge that there's so many forces at work. It's not any one person's fault. Tom Hanks that, has like, acknowledged just that. Right. When he said, I've only made two good movies. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, I just think we should be okay with it being like, you know, we pour our hearts, sweat and tears into these things and we think they're good. And then we're like, eh, maybe it wasn't so good. Yeah. I don't know. I can live with that. It does I like, feel- I, I think it does feel like there's especially because it, it generally feels like there are two different types of movies getting made like ip movies or movies that are have a message message movies and right. and so like you don't want to be like the person who's like oh i didn't love she said or till you know because <laughs> you're like uh, uh. <laughs> you're not supposed to say that about those movies <laughs> yeah yeah like, oh so you're anti 
<laughs> I don't even want to say the joke that I, the jokes I'm thinking because you can't you really shouldn't say that right, you don't like right. <laughs> and of course like you know I'm so happy that the menu got made a completely original script and shot by a succession director who I love but like I think there I was like I don't know what the story is at the end of this movie like I'm so glad it exists and there's some interesting moments and like I love the specific performances, but like, I don't know if I was fully there for the story in the satisfying way. I'm on a Verhoeven kick right now. Oh, as, there you go. And so like the way that I feel at the end of those movies, mm. as, you know. I mean, and, I mean come he, on, holding things up to RoboCop yeah. is a very high bar. <laughs> like, I mean, not compare everything. Like, He's not a great guy, but uh, man, some of those movies rock. <laughs> uh, what's the space one? The other space one? Starship Troopers. Yes, brilliant, and it's a satire. He really, tro- he also like really got everyone. It's a, it's a satire. Like, yeah, <laughs> I just thought it was a, a super God. serious film. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. No, Sadly, nothing a lot is worse of- though than when you see a movie and everyone else you were with loved it and you you really didn't like it, and that's like. That's such a hard thing for me to navigate. There's no way I've never pulled off like letting them know without completely sounding like a total jerk. <laughs> like I'm not good at it. Like, oh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Like, there's nothing you could say to, to not sound like a total jerk. Well, it's also it's one of the great gifts of being friends with other filmmakers mm-hmm. is when you get to have an argument about it. Like what Ryan Johnson saying with his Star Wars buddies is like. I remember one time I was at a party and somebody was like, "Oh, that's my favorite movie," and I was like, oh, "Are you kidding me? That movie's awful." My friend was like, dude, she just said she liked it. And I was like, yeah. And now we get to have an argument about it. Like, she's yeah. like, we're working on a film crew and we had like a fun art. And like, for years in LA, like, I go out of my way to see movies with filmmaker friends so we can walk out and we can be like, oh, you know, it was really working until it started lagging in the second act. And like, I enjoy that. Like, even yeah. on, well, I have nothing to say about Robocop, but praise. But like even on probably Starship Troopers, I have a few notes. And it's like that's it's like fun to be able to interrogate the experience. Yeah. Yeah. What's the point of the unexamined experience to me? Like everybody always tells me I'm a grouch and I hate everything. But it's just like (laughs) I I like picking it apart and dissecting it. Like that's the fun to me. Like I'm not right necessarily. I'm just opinionated. Goes back to the most controversial thing Todd has probably ever said on this podcast. Uh That he said a few minutes ago. Uh oh. When he said, "Well, you know, I don't, I don't really know much about this executive thing, so, so I, I'm not going to comment on it." Which is like the most controversial thing ever said on a podcast <laughs> by anyone ever. <laughs> no, I, I, this one time, I, I, I was sitting here and I was like, "I don't have anything to add to this, so I'm going to stay quiet." <laughs> which is like scandalous in podcasting. Yeah, it's that is not like this breaking era. the fundamental yeah. rule of podcasting. An internet. And well, everything. see, guys, the thing is this. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here's really what I think, yeah. And then I just like throw together a bunch of like random non sequiturs. Makes the shit up, yeah, yeah. Now that's what up. we call podcast. <laughs> All right, let's do ego. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Topic number two of this amazing Thanksgiving episode, ego checks. Uh, can you break down what, what you were thinking yeah. of, Gigi? 
So uh, I listened to George's interview with Tony Kushner about the the story bombs. No, the Fableman. <laughs> uh, and because um, he wrote the script, he also wrote West Side Story and he's collaborated with Spielberg for on many projects. And Lincoln, right? Yes. Lincoln, <laughs> Munich, I think was the first Munich, one. Munich, um, which I haven't seen. And now I'm going to see it after listening to that oh, episode. It's good. Uh, Actually real good. Oh, good. Okay. Lincoln's a, Munich's a mess. <laughs> we disagree. There's a sex scene where There's Eric Bana There's a weird sex scene. sweat gets on the lens. Oh my god! He's fucking so hard. His sweat comes off his face onto the lens in a movie about terrorism. Spielberg's <laughs> oh sex scene is a weird, like, just concept in general. Like Spielberg on sex is weird. Sex I, sweat gets I on the lens. I agree with that. I like Spielberg mm-hmm. hook et. You know, yeah. his Lincoln is great. Yeah. So what was interesting about that episode, and it was that Tony and Steven, we'll go on a first name basis, they, they, <laughs> they butt heads and they get into these really uncomfortable arguments about the story, about the script, about the movie that they're making. And as a, you know, woman, people pleaser, former client services, you know, whining and dining person who wants everyone at the party to be having a good time. I find it really uncomfortable to like sometimes go to those places and sit in that discomfort of holding your ground or pressure testing something. Though I do believe, and I think Kushner mentions this in the interview as well, and you highlighted this, George, that film is a collaborative process. And like, if something's not working, like a compromise has to be made. So anyway, I really, I, it got me thinking about like the times that I've had to like check myself and to that ultimately like let the story or the movie or the short be the best version of itself. And I feel like the best stuff is made when there's that mutual respect and ego checking. So I wanted to hear like the biggest ego checks of this crew. First of all, I think it's awesome that you listened to it and you pulled something valuable out of it. That's really cool. And you're not Todd. See, on our email chain, I thought Todd wrote that email, but it was Gigi. So I'm giving you more public credit. I have not oh, listened to it, George. I'm sorry. But I'm sure it's great. <laughs> Damn it, Todd. <laughs> I can't wait to hear your thoughts, Todd. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll give my thoughts. Todd, commentary. can you weigh in heavily on this with some hot takes? <laughs> um, so, Gigi, what it sounds like to me personally, because I can relate to some of what you said, is that you don't need to check your ego. You need to inflate it. Like, I feel like you might be the person in some of the dynamics who needs to be more outspoken and willing to disagree. And what I thought was, what I, what I tried to highlight, so I'm glad it, it, it came across, was I was like, damn, Tony Kushner's, like, Tony Kushner's a legend. Like, he's a Pulitzer Prize winning, like, I, like you know, Angels in America. Yeah. Like, guys, you know, he's awesome. But... It's still something to go toe-to-toe with Steven Spielberg, who's in, in the arena of making a movie, the bigger name, and Tony Kushner acknowledges this, like, obviously, the bigger force, but to still be like, you're wrong, Steven Spielberg. You're wrong about what you want to do right now mm-hmm. with this story about your life. <laughs> so I was really impressed that he, and he's a very, Tony Kushner is also super humble. Like, it wasn't ego, ego. It was just like, I want what's best for this. You understand I want what's best for this. We both want what's best for this. Here's how we're going to get there. And he talked about the idea of like a Hegelian dialectic, essentially, which is just like thesis, antithesis, synthesis. 
which is what you do when you create an argument, a better, stronger argument. You pressure test it and break it. And so here's my, my thinking. Like, I loved that because I think that there's two sides to it, obviously. There's the side of it. There's some of us who are less comfortable being... Like, to me, you need to have a dynamic where everybody understands that nobody is like on the chopping block mm-hmm. for not agreeing. And nobody is personally, like kind of what I just said, like it's not personal. Like if I say I don't think it's good, it's not personal. And, and if you say it's not good or you disagree with me, we're still friends. We will still walk out of here on the same team. Yeah. And we are doing this because we want the best thing, not because we think less of one another, because one of us, power is such a tough aspect of this because if you have one person with total power and one person who is their sub power person then that you can't can you are you allowed like you have to have i don't know that i'm the best example of this but whenever i try to do anything from a leadership standpoint i try to be like hey here's my take i can be convinced otherwise if somebody disagrees like tell me if somebody thinks i'm wrong like i try to yeah i try to put myself in the position where i'm like I'll be like self-deprecate. I'll be like, hey, you know, I'm an idiot. Maybe I don't know. Like, maybe I'm wrong. Tell me I'm wrong. Like, I wish more people in power did mm. that mm-hmm. because I think it would make people feel safer saying like, you are wrong. And yeah. I think this, but I think my personal struggle is more like yours where I don't always know. I don't always have the like willingness or ability to be like, to push back because it's like, I don't like conflict. I don't like making people feel bad. I don't really think it's worth it most of the time. But if I was told going in, like, this is a safe space. I'm not going to be hurt or angry if you tell me I'm wrong. I'm not going to not want to work with you anymore if we disagree. Like, let's disagree in a way that's, you know, productive. Like, if you kind of lay those ground rules, I think you can do great things. So I I loved it from that perspective that he put it out there. And I loved that he was like, I'm going to text Steven Spielberg endless texts while he's literally on set shooting and tell him all the things he's doing wrong. Yeah. And the idea that Steven Spielberg will take the time to read that and like argue back or agree or disagree or like engage with this man respectfully tells me so much about Steven Spielberg that Mm -hmm. I respect. Like, I'll tell you this. I don't think James Cameron would take too kindly (laughs) telling him like anybody telling him like, dude, you're wrong. Like that's all wrong. I think he might like throw them off the deep end of the ship into the deepest part of the Mariana Trench or whatever. Like, I like, so I don't know. I, I love the concept of it, but it's so hard to do. And as far as ego checks, like I remember once, like I was producing something and I was working with the director and I co-wrote it and I tried to kind of like weasel into the directing of it at some point. Mm -hmm. And I real, and he gave me the room to do that. And I realized in doing it that I was like, fuck, I'm like confusing things. Like I'm making things way, way worse here. Yeah. And it was just one of those moments where I was like, you know, and this, it's better to have one voice. Mm-hmm. It's better to, you know, but I, if anything, I think sometimes people like me or people like you, Gigi, we don't need to check as much as we need to find a comfortable way to be outspoken yeah. about what we actually think. Yeah. I think like I can really only kind of speak to it in this instance, like from a cinematographer's perspective. Where I, I really firmly believe like the, the life of a cinematographer should be one of like keeping your ego as in check as possible because mm. it's really easy a lot of the time to think, no, like it's going to look so much better if we do it this way. And it's not always possible. It's not always practical. And it's, it's truly like 
you have to really become comfortable with the fact that like you might not get the best possible visual, but it's all about getting the best possible story captured on on screen or whatever. Like that there's like a classic Deacon's quote about like a scene can work because of great acting and bad visuals, but not the other way around. You know, so it's like you mm. you, you just have to be and that's honestly been really hard for me a number of times. Like someone that I collaborate with really often, he loves to do these, these walk and talk oneers, and they're like ne- they they're never visually that great because I'm like on a gimbal and uh, my arms are shaking and I'm like you know I got like a big camera rig and I'm like barely able mm-hmm. to focus on where the person's in the frame or whatever. And like we were in Southside Chicago and there was this woman who'd like bought up all these drug houses with like no money and turned them into daycares. And it was like this beautiful story. And I was like, no, we need to go. We need to stop at each house and have her stand there and like a really perfectly framed up shot and have her talk about each thing or whatever. And I was like, I was getting like, I was being such an asshole about it. I was like, no, this is, (laughs) this is not how we're going to do this. Like, this is a great story. Let me shoot it. Great. Like, I want, like, this is my moment, you know, like in that ego started coming in. And so we shot this whole thing and it's like literally just her walking down the street and she starts reminiscing about each little thing and she's like talking about it and pointing at it and she can do this because she's walking and she's not just standing still mm-hmm. and the in, like literally we, it was like a 15 minute piece and like nine minutes of it is this one <laughs> and we we cut to little oh, wow. b-roll moments here and there but the thing worked only because of that decision and i was completely mm-hmm. wrong and that was for me, that was like, that was when I was like, okay, yeah, I really got to, ch-. you know, I was, I was quite a bit younger, a little bit more, you know, I don't know, cocky at the time. And so I, that was a big learning moment for me where I was like, yeah, this is not like, I'm not always going to have the best idea, you know? And so that's, that was a big turning point, I think for me when, when, when I was like, okay, yeah, I'm going to shut up. And like, if someone feels like their idea is better, I'm just going to be like, hell yeah, let's do it. You know? And, you know, it's like, that's the thing is like, I think, I think it's really just about like, I think George, you said it, like, where is, where is it coming from? Is it coming from a place of like, no, this is going to be the, like, I I really just want this to be the best it can be. And, and is, where is it coming from? You know? Something you're saying, I want to hear Charles for sure on this, but I want to pose a question maybe for Charles too, and for everybody to think about, because as you're talking, it occurs to me that like part of the issue is Sometimes we think we sense that the other side is ego motivated. And so that's kind of when we get ego motivated. So true. Like, how do we create the safe space where we can trust the other people who are? Because I think part of what I, what I, my sense about the Spielberg Kushner thing is that they both trust that one another has the best intentions and isn't trying to big shot. Like, 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 I think what Todd's talking about is that, like, we get these moments where we're like, I better shine here and I'm in it for me. Mm -hmm. And maybe we're not even totally conscious of it. And then sometimes we get the pickup off someone else who maybe isn't totally conscious that they're doing it. But we're like, ugh, this dude, and I'm saying dude because it almost always is going to be, but it's like, this is an ego thing right now. Like, and this sucks because he's not seeing the forest for the trees, like, or he's losing the forest for the trees. And like, and it's just like, okay, whatever. Either we fight back or we give up. Like, I think this is so hard to figure out, like both in looking inward and knowing how to do it, but also in managing like judo style when it's coming at you. Mm-hmm. Like it's, but it's the secret sauce, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. 
I mean, it, it's, it's I like, oh, go ahead, Charles. No, go ahead. I, I just have a lot of this. Go ahead. I think having seen documentaries about how Spielberg works, it feels like he is somebody who has mastered that that skill to hear and see and bring people in, but like maintain, like focus and redirect. And that's kind of like, like even just hearing, watching the ILM documentary and how Jurassic Park was made, like, like talk about egos having to be checked when you're completely pivoting in strategy for the best, for what is best for the movie. And, and the way that people were talking about that, decision to basically move away from stop motion and move to digital. They were like, it was really hard for this person who had put so much energy and in, in, in years of his life into developing these concepts. But what was interesting is there was this silver lining and that's, and I think I talked about this on the podcast before, but the guy who was doing the stop motion and that team, they ended up becoming the puppeteers for the digital ILM iterations of the dinosaur. So it's like, this isn't working, but the skill, something else was invaluable that then ultimately came around and made it the best thing ever. Still some of the best like CGI, mm-hmm. anything from, and it was the first time they were doing anything like this. Yeah. The interesting thing about Spielberg. So I, I have two people in my life that have collaborated with Spielberg, neither of whom have the power of Tony Kushner. And what's mm-hmm. interesting is I think that first off, I've heard from multiple people that Spielberg likes to work in the dark in early stages of development, which I've always really liked as a, like, first off, we're just going to talk about ideas and we're going to put stuff aside. I like that. But I also like, like, deliberately shifting us into another space. But when you say in the, the dark, people, do you mean like the lights are out? The lights are off. <laughs> Seriously? Like, yeah, like you go into Spielberg's office and you sit in a chair and he sits in a chair and they turn the lights out and you sit there in the dark for development. I love that. <laughs> I don't know if it's every project, but like, more than one person I know has sat in a dark room with Steven Spielberg working on a project. And the beauty of in, in both of these cases, I haven't heard Tony Kushner style pushback stories, which tells me that Spielberg is very conscious, not just of like when he has to push and when he can push like someone closer to equal status, Tony, but like the much more junior people I know who are probably very happy to have been in anything that you can't push with. And what's interesting is being conscious of like, when you do and when you don't, when it's appropriate and when it's not. And you see that so seldom. You see so many people who are like, okay, you are used to it being a battle between you and Akiva Goldsmith where you can scream at each other. And now you've got somebody who just got their script sold off the blacklist and you're going to scream at them. And it's like, no, that person who just sold a script off the blacklist and is still living in a rental in Studio City, like, you're pro- like is not Akiva Goldsmith. So it's a different, like it's it's a different thing, and I think Spielberg is very conscious of that. And I think you see that. I mean, directing is fundamentally about consciousness of character. I remember my first job in entertainment was in publicity, or my second job after working for Leo. I was working in publicity at Landmark Theaters, and the publicist had all these great insights. And she's like, "I could tell you what everyone on the movie did bef- without knowing their job titles based on the press tour, because the actors show up and they just have stories about themselves." And the directors show up and they never want to talk about themselves. They just want to ask everybody else what they're doing. They're just so hungry for everything they could learn. And like, these are people, this landmark theaters, these are people who've been making movies for 30 years. And she's like, as soon as the director walks in, they're asking you about their day. They're asking you about what you do for a living. They're asking you. And she was so right. Like the next day, this guy who had directed the fast runner came in, which is an amazing movie, uh, Canadian movie, Inuit film. And like, 
he was just picking my, like, he was like going in detail through my day with me. And because he just wanted to know everything. He wanted to know everything about people. And I think that is a thing in directing. So I think that there's a lot of nuance of power there. The thing I always go back to is being right-sized. And that's the hardest thing for me. And it's the hardest thing for me because it's the balancing thing. Like in a lot of ways, it's much easier for me to be like, all right, well, I'm just going to be an asshole or I'm just going to be really nice. And it's Mm. like, no, I'm going to be the right-sized. I'm going to advocate for the things I'm supposed to advocate for. And I'm going to pay attention to nuance and how it's landing and how it's working on other people. That is like 15 times more work than just being a bulldozer or just being me. Both of which are way easier. And being right-sized is like this constant practice. And I have to say, there's shit in the way we climb the ladder that makes it harder. So like I came up client services, right? I had a production company for a long time. We were making commercials. We were making music videos. And like in the beginning of doing that, like I just needed money. I just needed money really badly. I had to pay rent. Mm -hmm. And I like, I just, please, can I do this thing where you will pay us money so I can pay fucking rent, please? So like I had no opinions and I remember they'd be like, what do you think? And, and I'd just be like, I, I, and I, and I knew enough to say, I couldn't say, I don't know, but like, I didn't fucking care about this commercial for whatever the fuck. Like I just want, what do you want? And I will give it for you. I will dance. Mm-hmm. And it's like, eventually I realized like my, as a freelance colorist, my rate went from 40 an hour to 150 an hour in a year. And in that year was the year that I started doing this thing I watched other colorists do where I told them what it should look like. I walked in and I looked at it and I was like, you should look like this. Like it, it's sort of the opposite of the journey that Todd went on where I started telling them what they wanted it to look like and they started valuing me more mm. because I was starting at this like meek, desperate, I just need money because I'm hungry. Like I please, like I have student loans to pay. And so I, I got to a right size of, oh, I'm going to have an opinion. I'm going to let it go when you disagree but I have an opinion. Mm-hmm. I, I never really got to the like, well, I know some colorists who left rooms when they're like, you want to make it look like that? Fuck it. Hire someone else. Oh I never God. got there. That's the James um, Cameron side. So I, <laughs> <laughs> there's some colorists out there, who, but like I landed in Is a it nice worth it? Is it worth it? Like for that colorist to leave the room, like w- will their name being attached to something that they don't like the color of? really impact their career? Because that feels like an ego check throwing away. Like This is where that question, I love Charles's right size-ness idea. It's so hard. I find, I I default to the easier ways all the time. But that's because what you just said, Gigi, is is kind of like at the core, uh, like my, my operating system runs it as like, is it worth it? And the answer is almost always no. Like nothing is. Like I kind of have this core belief that like whatever we're doing is not more important than people and it's not more important than my humanity and it's not more important than, and I had a, I had a boss once cause I've been in middle management positions a few times and I had a boss once who told me like, you have a lot of leadership skills and you're good, but you're just way too nice. You're way too nice. And I remember thinking like, I'm okay mm. with that. Like being too nice, like I'll go down being too nice. Like I can live with myself that way. I don't think I can live with like, I think there's people out there who are the exact opposite where they're like, I can live with everyone hating me, but I will not fail. Mm. But I'm like, failure on what? Like, to me, it doesn't matter. Like nothing does except for people and humanity. So like I have like, and, and, but I think that what I wish sometimes is that people came into situations and were like, 
like, just let's all agree that we're just trying to do our best here. And we're not going to take it personally. Because that for me would make it so much easier to be like, no, okay, I'll butt heads if we agree that like you're not going to take it personally. But I've just seen so many people like even like the inability to actually do that, like to be in the room, Charles, as the colorist, like I've never would be a colorist, never have been. But for me to say like, do you really want to know what I think? Because I'll tell you. (laughs) Or do you just want to tell me and we'll do what you want? Like, like I wish you could have a contract or something that was like, I'll tell you what I think of your script or I'll just tell you good job, you know, like, and I don't care. And like happy, go be a happy person and live your life. You know, <laughs> I think it's so hard. Like to me, it's so hard. I, I, the other thing I wanted to say is I think the ego check gets easier, the bigger the rest of your life is. So for me, when my life was my company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was working on a movie and I got notes I didn't like or something. And it was like, this was it. Those, those notes felt much bigger. Yeah. But now I got a wife and I got a kid and my wife got sisters and we're going to go hang out at Thanksgiving. And like, I see my parents, like, like the bigger the rest of your life is, it can still sting when those notes come in, but it no longer feels like the end of the existence. Yeah. And that is like yes. been a big important thing for me because like it is, it is interesting that my, like everyone should want to make the best movie possible. And if that means pushing the project as hard as we can, that's good. And finding ways to model that for each other and check in with each other about how we would like to hear that feedback and disengage when it's not going well. Like if you have a creative collaborator and you're, you know, you're co-writing something together and you're like, okay, this has been a lot of feedback. I, I sort of need to cool it on feedback for a minute while we do another draft. And then they send another round of vicious notes. It's like, okay, well, this is someone who's not, respecting boundaries like i've given yeah not respecting like it's not working so at this point four movies in spielberg and kushner have found a way to communicate that works mutually for both of them and they both find very rewarding and i think that like recognizing that it's going to be different for everybody at different times and that a lot of it like a lot of it just has to do with respect and phrasing and that like You know, there's this thing that some people I know, when they give notes, they're like, well, it, you know, I'm just going to give my opinion. And if you can't handle it, that's on you. And sure, <laughs> a little bit, but also like we've practiced for hundreds of years now, like how to contribute collaboratively to projects together we are working on. And there are ways we can do it better to make it a more supportive, productive environment. Mm-hmm. I'm like, we should all always be trying to grow and evolve in how that works, I think. With that, I think we should move on to a quick round of what we are grateful for this Thanksgiving about cinema. And then we will, um, uh, I'll do my Ask No Film School of you three and the audience. I can start with what I'm grateful for. Go for it. Go for it. Uh, so, you know, like everybody else, I've had my like top 10 list of best TV shows of all time. And like there's The Sopranos and Mad Men and The Wire. There's a new addition to the list. Uh, it's a TV show called Bluey. Mm. It's from Australia. And I am not kidding. Whether you have a child or not, but like if you have a child, even better. Bluey is top five TV show of all time. Yeah. Bluey, Bluey is, is Bluey is goaded for sure. It's really good. It's, Bluey is the truth. <laughs> I have not heard of Bluey. So. Um, I mean, you should probably wait until a kid is around or watch it with like yeah. a kid of some sort. But like, I, I am not someone who gets choked up at media. I've gotten choked <laughs> up at media. I've cried once in my adult life. I'm like from the Midwest. We don't cry. Um, I got choked up once at Ratatouille, but I was on a plane, and so <laughs> I don't know if that it. affected it. In the last week, twice I've gotten teary at Bluey. 
Like Bluey's just. I also have a cold, so who knows? But like Bluey's good. <laughs> it's it's so. Fair. That's what I'm. That's what I'm thankful for about media right now. Nice. That's a good one. Gigi, you want to go? Um, I will go. I am thankful for. So I have been meeting with a writers group for um, a year now, uh, and we met during a Sundance collab. Write your horror screenplay class uh, taught by Owen Egerton, who is just a joy and a wonderful teacher, and said, "Let your horror have as much life as it has death." And that I think about that every day uh, when I write my horror. Um, and I just, you know, there are four of us, and we now meet weekly. And I uh, have seen us all grow as writers, and so I'm really thankful for that community. And it's a group, you know, Texas, New Jersey, two people in L.A. And it's uh, it's just great to be able to have a reliable group of people who are just as passionate about writing and doing the work. Because I think, you know, in in starting out, a lot of people say they want to do the work and uh, but few put their action action to their words. So I'm thankful for my writers group, which we we call ourselves. Rock R O Q. Somebody who dropped out of the group in our first meeting was like, "Oh, readers of quality," uh, and so now we have like a shared Zoom, and we call it the Quarry. Uh, so we also have like a fun theme. Yeah, thankful for you guys. Um, yeah, I think I'm also. I'm going to go a similar route, and I think um, you know these are people that that none of y'all know, but I'm I'm going to say I'm thankful for my my friends who have kind of they've it's been a it's been a tough year or so. And yeah, they've kind of kept me from losing my mind and they've helped me a lot creatively and stuff in the last few years. So Mike, Logan, Art, Austin, thank you. If, if for some reason you listen to this, <laughs> but yeah, I don't, yeah, it's been, it's been, it's been a tough, tough little period and, and I don't know what I would have done without them. And I, I might've even given up on filmmaking. So they kept, they kept me in the game. Oh, good. That's good. Mine is probably closer to Charles's. Um, Bluey is is really good, and I do I do feel like there's a uh, good kid programming is so valuable, and uh, it's basically it's just that one show. Everything yeah, else well, is right ride. now, but yeah, but there, but there is like historically, like Sesame Street and Mister Rogers, and just stuff that like values the right mm. stuff mm. and like helps kids develop important values is really important anyway um because there's so much yeah. crap too for kids that's anyway um but i'm gonna pick a show too because i easily lose faith in the capacity of the industry to create good things and i've thought it, it's in, it, indicative in all my commentary on this podcast and in my life like i i can really be down on the machine and uh honestly this show andor that's about star wars I didn't think someone could make a show about Star Wars at this stage that was engaging to me this way or made me reflect at all or was just like good science fiction. Certainly not about these characters, many of whom were like side characters in lesser random movies, uh, even though I like Rogue One. Uh, Tony Gilroy. And Dan Gilroy and the rest of the writers are like the real deal. Like Michael Clayton's great. Um, Nightcrawler is great. Nightcrawler. Like they're, they're, yeah. 
their writing like is it's real writing mm-hmm. and like writing is so good writing that's like and i'm talking about the simple building blocks like what happens in a scene one character wants something another character is going to keep it from them just the basic shit that you need to get right and then at the end of the scene there's like a new thing there's a new hurdle like and just turning it and turning it and turning it like scene after scene act after act episode after episode building that way mm-hmm. like i forgot what it's like when someone just executes the fundamentals because these things like the obi-wan show and the boba fett show and marvel phase 4 and all this stuff like they're just so sloppy mm-hmm. with the fundamentals right. that you're just like like i'll look past it i'll look past it and then you get numb and then you're like well cities crumbling doesn't matter like stakes don't mean anything. Right. I don't care. Like, and I just feel like that, like what Todd said earlier when we were talking about it is like, just make the shit good again. Like, and, and seeing somebody just say like, Hey, all I'm going to do is take a couple characters in a little scene in a room and I'm going to make it sizzle and I'm going to turn the plot and you're going to care. And it just gives me faith that it, you don't need the big property. You could use the property, but you don't need Han Solo in it. You don't need anything. Like you can just do it. Like it's easy. They make it look easy nice. and it's not, but like, it's just beautiful to see that because yeah. like, it'll give you faith that like you can write about anything. You can write about the most tired IP known to man, or you can write something completely fresh. But if you do it the right way, it'll be mm. good. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Nice. <laughs> like Writing matters. And I just, I'm grateful so, for good. So writing. and or is thumbs up. Okay. It's good, man. I'll, I'll have to like, check it out. It, it was in, it was completely it. invisible it's to good. me because I'm I'm like you, man. I'm I'm haggard and I'm done like, and it, I can't look at another yeah. thing that has Star Wars I, or Marvel honestly, in it. Like it's it's not really even Star Wars. Like it barely it's like it's like barely okay, related. Cool. I'll really. check it out. But it's just good right. writing. Like it's good fundamental writing. I just read uh, State of Play, the a Tony Gilroy script and. I don't love the movie, but I love the script. I, it's like reading a novel. So, plus one to Tony. Like, yeah. if you want to have fun on just a writing kick, like, get, like, there. you can go on Amazon and find it. Like, Patty Chayefsky wrote all these TV plays and he wrote teleplays. Like, when TV was, like, sta- like, in the 50s, like, before he was writing, like, Network, which is, like, his big masterpiece. But, like, when he was just executing the basics and he wrote about what he did and he kept it so simple. And he did it so well. Like good writing can just be people in a room, in a house, and it can be better than anything bombastic that you'll ever see. It's just like, that's what, I feel like that's what Gilroy gets. Like it, it comes from theater, I think in mm, some cases. But yeah. Anyway, I could go on forever. I just love it. Good writing. Okay, so we're going to wrap up with an Ask No Film School. So this is my ask of you three. And I'm also asking the audience, please get at me on Mastodon or Twitter because I don't know the answer. So I was uh, in upstate New York a couple weeks ago. I was speeding. I'm not a speeder by habit, but my daughter was about to fall asleep and I wanted to get gas before she fell asleep. So, you know, if you've been there there, where you're like, I need to do this thing before you fall asleep. So I was speeding and I haven't been pulled over for speeding in like 12 years because I'm by nature. I drive the speed limit. I got pulled over and it took forever. Very nice state trooper. Took forever. State trooper came back, said, here's your ticket for speeding. And you should know there is a man with your name and birthday wanted by the police in Puerto Rico. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you what? should do something about that. And then walked away. 
You just said you, you should, should do, do something, something about, about that. Like what? Hire a hitman? What is that? Exactly. What should I do about this? Oh my God. Like, it, and so like, I've done a bunch of research. I asked on Reddit. I asked on Twitter and like, what should I, what should I, I haven't been on a plane in like three years because of the pandemic and having a four-year-old, but like, just going to make flying weird. Like are people, cause I've never even been to Puerto Rico. <laughs> My dad has been to Puerto Rico, so maybe he lied and used my name to commit crimes. <laughs> it's my name and birthday. That's crazy. Uh, so what do I do? I get a Puerto Rican lawyer to try and clear my name. Do There's got to be like, someone what? you can contact about that. There's got to be some department of something. Well, if there's a real Charles Hayne with your same birthday wanted, I don't think you can do anything about it. Unless well, it was I don't think there that. is. I mean, I would be very surprised. At this point, I know the other Charles Haynes. So there's a Charles Haynes around my age in England who's very rich. And his email address is one letter away from mine. And I know he's very rich because occasionally I will get his hotel receipts and private plane receipts. And I will be like, oh, you flew from London to Joburg on a private jet. And it was 27,000 pounds like that. Like I should keep this and write it off my taxes. (laughs) So he blogs about ports. And stuff. I follow him when he writes a blog about like why Manchester needs to dig out its port. That's not an English accent. <laughs> <Is that accent? laughs> no, I have no idea what it was. That was like a translation. There's only one other. So this is the thing. Like there can't just be one other Charles Hayne. There's got. I mean, be I've looked bunch. it up. There's like seven of us. There's like, dozens of Hayne, us. Dozens. Hayne is not a very common last name, and Charles is one of those first names that like is not nearly as common as you because of that fucker the the king. It seems like a common name, but everybody hated him. So nobody has really named their kid Charles since they realized what a dick he was. Mm. Like the name really dropped off by the 70s when people are like, fuck that guy. I don't know why my parents mm. didn't notice, but everybody else was like, uh, that name sucks. I mean, I I know like my name's not common, but there are there are others. There are George Edelman's like I Google one of them's like a your birthday committing crimes. <laughs> in that, so that's the part that's that's the part that's super weird. Like the birthday part is what makes me think there's foul play. Yeah. But I still wouldn't be like, like I, there's a George gentleman who's like a composer who I get his emails and they're all in another language. And there's one who's like an osteoporosis or so, like, there's one who's like a weird, like back doc. I don't know what they're like. I Google them and I see them and I'm, I am the top hit luckily and I've worked for that, but there are other, there are others. I don't think we share birthday, uh, but I'm not surprised. I, I wouldn't be like, it's impossible. Like it's I'm not saying it's impossible. They, I'm saying it yeah. seems way more likely that I am being impersonated in some way, shape, or form. Someone used my information yeah. to commit some sort of crime. So, it so seems if it's statistically dad, more likely. For me, all through, like I would say my entire senior year of high school, I got pulled over every, like almost every time I was driving after the hour of like 7 p.m. I got pulled over. So, and and for some reason... My license plate was tied to a woman in Fort Worth, which is like an hour away, who had committed a crime and she had a warrant out for her arrest. Her name was like Cynthia Caballero or something. They would pull me over, call back up. There would be like three cop cars behind me. And it got to the point where like the cops started recognizing me. They're like, oh, you're the Cynthia Caballero guy. And one time I had my (laughs) my girlfriend, who is now my wife in the car, and they thought she was Cynthia. They got like it was a whole big ordeal and it went on for a very long time. I probably got pulled over 25 times and you know how I got it to go away. How? I, I have no idea. It just stopped. 
<laughs> I don't know what happened. I don't know. Maybe she got caught. Say, I found her and I brought yeah. her to the law. Like a no, pound. I have no idea. I just stopped and he brought her no, in. I don't know. But I really thought you were about to be like, and then I called 1 800. No, I don't have any help for stop you. Stop arresting. It was just a Not weird thing me. that happened. <laughs> Charles, maybe you need a private investigator. Yeah. Any I mean, this PIs is out the there on the podcast listening? Yeah, any, any, any PIs in the Puerto Rico area or Miami who can travel who want to track PR this down PI. for me? I had a similar thing in my 20s where some there was a fella who was giving out my name and phone number to women he would like have encounters with and then oh they would like call God. me after. And like, oh, it no. was the strangest thing because it happened like three or four times. Where like they'd be texting me and calling me and leaving me voicemails and I'd be like and it would be like I remember you Friday and I was like I was with my girlfriend Friday like we stayed in and watched it was like the strangest but maybe it's the thing. same person and it went on for like a, a while you maybe it you went, were but that dude club. had my phone number maybe. I assumed it was somebody I'd given my business card to at some point but he wouldn't have I had guess. my birthday who like what is do you know what crime he's wanted for did we get that I did not get that and I've been trying to look up like mm. warrant searches for Puerto Rico. Remarkably hard to do. I mean, I think I'm going to ask an attorney. I would get an attorney first, but my, maybe I know, it just seems like one PI, of these things that, like, I'm immediately like, oh, this is going to cost me like seven thousand dollars. I think. Yeah. And you're like, well, at least yeah, you got a script idea out of it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> me going to Puerto Rico to try and murder someone who's making my name yeah. bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was parody. Official parody. <laughs> In case this wanted criminal turns up dead, I am not a suspect. That was parody. Good luck with that. Because if they're a wanted criminal, yeah, they may be. I'm not. I'm just going to try and bring him to justice. I'm not going to try and yeah. injure anyone. I'm just going to go down to Puerto Rico Citizen and make sure that they clear my name. Find that Charles Hain in Puerto Rico. Yeah. Um, we'll keep his posted. Right, well, uh, that is that is this week on the No Film School podcast. Everybody have a wonderful Thanksgiving. You can find me on Mastodon at Charlesane at barbecue.snoot. I'm also on Twitter, <laughs> but mostly watching it sink. And on Instagram, mostly looking at pictures of bikes and uh, in cameras. Airy posts a lot. They have a lot of mm. stuff. I'm at Lost in Graceland on Mastodon barbecue.snoot, which I started two weeks ago and I haven't been on since. So I hopefully I'll see you there and I'll be pitching James Gunn, right? That's who I'm pitching on Mastodon. Um, well, I will join Mastodon as, as, as soon as I've listened to the Kushner interview. And then um, you, you can find me at Am I a Filmmaker on Instagram and YouTube. I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief of No Film School. I'm not on Barbecue Snoot yet, but I will be because it's called... I forgot that it was called Barbecue Snoot, and that makes me happy. Nofilmschool.com is a website. Head over there, check out stuff, enjoy all kinds of film tech, news, education. Filmschool.com still not owned by Elon Musk, right? <laughs> it is not. Well, there we go. It is not. There we go. And it's, and no film school is on Twitter and, and Facebook and Instagram and, and barbecue snoot as well, maybe soon. <laughs> and you can like, rate, and subscribe to this podcast and send your questions or your answers about the other Charles Hayne in Puerto Rico to editor at nofilmschool.com. And leave a comment. Let us know what you think. And and uh, happy Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm.